Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we focus on local newspapers in an era of change and discuss the influence of radical black thought on modern American fiction. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and brand new music from Chicago's top local artists. It's the Lumpen Week in Review for August 27th, 2021. I-94 talked to Jesse McCarthy about his two new recent books, the first a novel, the second a book of essays. McCarthy talked about the influence of Gustave Flaubert on his novel The Fugitivities and the teachings of the theorist Fred Moten on black thought and studies in the U.S. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Jesse, I kind of want to start with some thoughts about what I would call the source material for the novel, if that's okay. When I was reading it... um, and this is maybe something that didn't occur to you, and I'll be interested in your reaction to it, but it reminded me very much of the Woody Allen movie Manhattan, which uh, came out in 1977. And as I was thinking about why that was, I realized that both Manhattan and The Fugitivities owe something of a debt uh, to the works of Gustave Flaubert, and I'm thinking particularly of a sentimental education. Uh, Manhattan is a loose remake of that work, which came out for people who are not familiar uh, around 1870, uh, it is the follow-up to Madame Bovary, not thematically or in characters, but it was his second book. And it concerns uh, the lives of young Parisians uh, kind of just before the French Revolution. I would call the characters kind of anti-heroic, maybe. Um, Henry James memorably described the novel as cynical. I don't know if I'd call your novel cynical, but I did see some real similarities in the way that your characters move through the novel and the way that Flaubert used space and time to tell kind of his story of the psychogeography of the era in question. Am I completely off base? Uh, uh, no, it's very perceptive, actually. Uh, the truth is is that uh, that was, in fact, one of the models for the book. Um, Sentimental Education has always been uh, one of my favorite novels. Um, and it's a novel that... Uh, I should say, I suppose, for our listeners, in terms of my background, um, although I'm American, I uh, grew up abroad. Uh, My parents were journalists, and um, we moved to Paris when I was quite young. I was about eight years old. And so I went through uh, a kind of fairly standard or formal um, French educational system. And as part of that, you know, we had to to read sort of through their canon. Um, And so... I encountered um, Flaubert's works um, in that context. At the time, um, we were assigned uh, Madame Bovary, which is, uh, you know, I think pretty common, actually. Even here, if you get assigned a novel by Flaubert, it, it tends to be that one. Um, and, you know, and I, and I loved that novel, too. But I think um, it was probably around uh, the time I was uh, kind of, getting out of college around 2006, 2007, really around uh, just before the moment when I began um, both kind of the the travels and the thinking and the writing or the initial writing of this this book manuscript, um, I finally sat down and and read The Sentimental Education um, and was completely blown away by it. Um, And I think it was partly that I was attracted to the way in which um, Flaubert, to my mind, was thinking about um, novelistic form and kind of rejecting some of the 
some of the more uh, sort of conventional elements of um, plot, something, you know, for which that novel was, was sort of famously criticized at the time, sort of wayward, it didn't, didn't have the right kinds of development, it had certain disjunctures in time that people found to be um, frustrating um, to their expectations. Um, but also, of course, his, his deeply, um, ironic, some would say cynical, uh, I think it's a, I think it's, a, it's a more complicated case or, or there's sort of more complicated things at work, but certainly his deeply ironic take on, um, a certain kind of, uh, milieu, the milieu of, uh, sort of young bourgeois intellectuals, uh, slightly adrift, um, um, interested and invested in, in politics or believing that they are in certain kinds of ways, um, but also, you know, failing to, uh, not only, I would say, to live up to those politics, but even in a certain sense to really understand what the political is and and his kind of um, interest in exploiting that that disjuncture um, and that differential. And all of those um, things were, were very much on my mind. And when I came to... Um, sitting down and thinking about, um, you know, how I was going to write the book and what some of my, what some of my models were going to be. Sentimental, sentimental education was absolutely one of the most important influences. Um, yeah, so it's it, well observed. Well, I, I think it's an interesting thing. You, you noted that Flaubert's characters are interested in politics but don't necessarily understand them. You know, my recollection of the novel, and it's it's been quite some time since I read it, to be candid with you, but they seem to be very preoccupied with questions of status and money uh, and doing things that were kind of expected of them, which I, I believe is why James, you know, labeled it as cynical. And sure. somebody else might see that as a, a different way. And certainly the characters in your book um, have expectations as well and expectations thrust upon them. But I think that's an interesting observation because one of the things that happens in your book is that the politics of the characters become increasingly kind of slippery. Um, they're expected to do certain things, and certain things are proscribed by the groups they're in, you know, notably whether they're in the New York mm -hmm. literary scene or whether they're teaching at a, mm -hmm. a school. Um, but those aren't necessarily the things that, A, they believe in or, or even feel comfortable in. And I, I think that that does directly yeah. reflect what Flaubert was writing about, you know, in 1840, you know, before the French Revolution. Uh, yeah, or certainly the revolution of, uh, of 48. But what I would say is, is that, you know, the other thing I think, um, and, and this gets, uh, it really does get at some of the kind of core similarities between, between the books is that, um, you know, it's a book that, that in many ways is also, um, interested in some of the tensions or differences in between, um, you know, relationships of, um, romantic entanglement and aspiration and, um, you know, people uh, using each other and being interested in each other for certain kinds of um, social adva advancement, you know, in a, in a manner very similar, um, you know, to, to Stendhal, um, who had already explored that kind of terrain. Um, but it's also, um, you know, famous for its, um, I think, rather... Um, um, rather sharp and, and, um, and, and acutely observed, um, sense of, uh, male friendship, uh, you know, notably famously in the book between, um, Frederick 
and uh, Delaurier, his friend, um, who uh, sort of have these um, parallel paths through the book um, and seem at times to be um, so incredibly close, um, but but also at other times um, sort of worlds apart. Uh, and, and, and some, some of that, uh, you know, aspect of, of wanting to explore both, both of those kinds of relationships and setting them up in some of the ways that, um, that Flaubert does in his novel were, were definitely influential to me as I was thinking about, uh, what I wanted to do in, in my own book. There was a, a sense of randomness in, throughout the novel of characters running into each other, um, running into Octavio at the movie theater, his college friend, and... Yeah, for me, what the influences that I read into, and I have very different educations than you and Jamie. I, I was thinking of like um, Carver, The Beats, yeah, Richard yeah. Lankletter, Slacker. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but it's sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just there was this like wonderful sense of randomness, and some of the reviews I read, you know, they were like, "There's not a clear cut ending," and you know, that's very random and blah blah, and you know. That's the whole point. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, isn't literature supposed to be like different? I mean, it's you know, it's not. I mean, I every the, project is its own, but with with this particular project, that's the point. It seemed to me. Yeah, and that's that was it was it was very you know I read some of these reviews and I'm just like, don't you guys read anything besides James Patterson or something? Because it's not formulaic, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, mm-hmm. it was also mentioned in a few things that it was a, a, a quest, you know, it was a quest narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that it was a quest when you were writing it, and did you have any um, influences in that sense as as a quest novel? Well, you know, um, I you know I appreciate that you you know you brought that up, especially kind of the tradition of um, the American road novel, you know, and and um, and the beats to a certain extent, the idea of being on the road of a con- and, and of. Uh, the, yeah, questing and mobility uh, through space, which allows for a certain kind of, um, you know, contingency and 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 randomness. Um, you know, when I when I when I think about the the matrix, if I can put it that way, of influences, and this was actually you know part of what I was trying to set out to do was, you know, in, in a certain sense, you know, I. You know, I grew up in France, and so I had, on the one hand, a kind of, you know, I was steeped and soaked in um, the French literary canon, the French tradition. So it was one way in which I sort of came to literature. My ideas about literature and literary taste were strongly influenced by that experience. And then on the flip side, um, when I was in college, I was primarily interested in reading the history of the American novel. And then even more specifically, um, the history of African-American literature, uh, which ended up being, you know, what I pursued later on in grad school as a, as, you know, as an academic project. So what I, you know, mostly, for, for the most part, write about, uh, you know, think about and, 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 you know, do research on is really, you know, the, the history of, of the African-American, you know, literary tradition and also thinking about its connections to various other literary traditions and movements. And, you know, when I, when I sat down to write the novel, I was very conscious of the fact that one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to see, you know, okay, what, what would happen if I tried to, you know, combine some of the, um, some of these different traditions, um, in a, 
in a kind of, you know, some kind of new synthesis. So, on you know, pull in Flaubert um, from the American tradition, you know, the road novel. Um, yeah, to a certain extent, you know, that kind of on-the-road beatnik, you know, atmosphere. Um, and then also, you know, from the African-American literary tradition, uh, you know, you know, Zora Neale Hurston and Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man and, you know, uh, you know all these preoccupations with, you know, identity and race. And how would it, you know, what would happen and what was it possible in a sense to kind of fuse these all together into something new and different? Nancy Clem spoke to the team behind the Southside Weekly about the challenges of running a newspaper in these times. Jackie Serrato, Martha Bain, and Alma Castillo discussed the ins and outs of independent journalism covering Chicago's largest set of neighborhoods and why the Southside has been historically underrepresented in the media. Spontaneous Vegetation airs the second and fourth Sundays at 5 p.m. So has COVID actually expanded um, your readership and... um, your need for coverage. I mean, you have some specific coverage going on with uh, very kind of um, hot issues right now. So how has, how has COVID affected your paper other than thinking like, okay, we need to, we need to fortify this. What has it done for readership? What has it done for people uh, submitting articles to you, your volunteer base? I can I can speak. Well, to that. We, we've go ahead, Martha. Oh. <laughs> go ahead, Jackie. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to say that uh, you know, for the longest, we were primarily a print product and and focused on you know putting out the paper. Even though we've we've also had a website all along, uh, but you know we were always focused on you know on the on the print product of of the Southside Weekly. But um, ever since 
COVID-19, we've, we've had to shift the way we do things and, and the way that our, uh, our work is consumed. Um, so we've been putting a lot of work into our website and uh, now we, we publish a lot of stories uh, on the web first before they, they go in print. Oh. Um, so, you know, we, we've just been trying to, to adapt to the, to the situation. Um, unfortunately, it looks like COVID is, you know, is lingering, like it, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So um, uh, in a way, we've, we've, we've optimized our, our web presence and also our, our presence on, on social media. Um, but, but it definitely makes it, I think, a little bit difficult to, to recruit volunteer writers when, when everything is, is remote and, and digital. Um, but, you know, d- despite uh, that barrier, uh, you know, the fact that we're not working face-to-face like we would like, um, we still have, you know, uh, a network of uh, literally hundreds of writers who, who come and go. And, you know, whenever they have an interesting story to tell, you know, they, they will come to us, they'll reach out and, and we'll work with them. Um, and, and we also have what we call a pitch doc, which is basically a list of, of story ideas that anyone, anyone in our network or even outside our network can claim and they can work on, on those stories. Um, so I, I would say that we're, you know, even with the pandemic, we're, we're very approachable to the community. So people who want to get their start in journalism, or, you know, even if they don't consider themselves journalists, if, if they're just writers or, or poets or photographers or content creators, um, you know, they, I feel like people know that if, if they have something that, you know, they would like published that they can count on us. So you're all volunteer driven, except for your editor, uh, your staff of editors then. So anybody who writes for you writes freely? For the most part, well, Jim, I know you have something to say, but let me just say one thing here. Um, uh, yeah, one of the things that was did happen with COVID was, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, we definitely lost this sort of like face-to-face like sense of community that I think was really important to the weekly and to like kind of like the way that we were helping to try to train up new journalists. Um, but we did get some funding. So we definitely, we've had um, that, you know, there has been a pool of money directed to media outlets from various sources, you know, to try and bolster coverage of, of the pandemic, especially in communities of color um, and the communities that are otherwise underserved by the mainstream media. And so we we were a, we have been able on a project by project basis to, to provide stipends to some writers mm-hmm. during the pandemic, which has been very nice, um, who are specifically writers who are working on uh, COVID related stories. Um, anyway, Jim, what were you gonna say? Oh, I was just going to add that one of the um, challenges that COVID presented was related to distribution because the newspaper, you know, we drop it off in coffee shops and bookstores and places like that. And all those places shut down during the pandemic. So we had to reimagine how we distribute the paper. And and there were a few things that our managing director, Jason Schumer, and, and some of the other people came up with. And one of them was that we now distribute the paper with, I don't recall its name, but it's a fresh food distribution org. Uh, do you know it was, uh, we, it's through Star Farm. We think we're still working with Star Farm and also with Market Box. Market Box too, yeah, that's right. right. And then Southside Blooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah we, we created this um, 
during the height of the pandemic, this was, it was really cool actually, because there was nowhere to distribute the paper. So we partnered with a lot of community organizations that were doing, uh, whether they were doing grocery delivery or, um, or, you know, like farm box pickup and things like that, where we would like tuck a free copy of the paper into people's groceries. Um, or if you ordered flowers from Southside Blooms, you would get a free copy. The pet flowers would come wrapped in an old copy of the weekly, and then you'd get a new copy of the weekly along with it. So, um, so that was that's real, that was really cool. And we're definitely um, we're still doing some of those initiatives have kind of petered out as the city has reopened, but um, but some of them are still going on. We also started a subscription service which we didn't have before. So you can you can actually subscribe to the weekly and have it be delivered to your mailbox. Um, but yeah, we had to get creative. Yeah, it was so your print run has probably dropped, but you still believe that uh, print is important. So um, can you speak to that, or why you believe that print is still important over digital? Besides obvious reasons of some people aren't. Um, aren't connected in the same ways? Is there, are there other reasons you believe in a printed paper? I, th I think that that's the big one. Like, you know, especially the digital divide on the South side is pretty well documented. There are a lot of people who don't have reliable access to um, the internet. And um, a lot of people who maybe not, that's just not the way that they choose to consume their information. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the print, the, the sort of like the stumble upon factor of a print product mm -hmm. as a way of, of both you know, getting the paper out there and also just being visible, like physically visible in a public space in a way that a website isn't, I think was really, we've discovered people really respond to that. We have um, people, so people really like it. It's something that they really appreciate about the, the weekly. So. I, I think too, there's a number of advantages um, on to print. So let's say complement digital, right? Um, and one is just simply the presentation of news is different. You know, like it's it's very different to open a two-page spread that has art and um, a pull quote and and maybe a, a graph or something like that than it is to scroll through all of that on your phone. Um, it's just a completely different experience. Um, the the front page of the paper uh, is, is something that's obviously different online as opposed to in the print issue where, you know, it's a big, beautiful piece of art that um, it's just better to experience in person, I think. And then also the, the sharing factor. I mean, you know, you can share, quote unquote, an article on Twitter by just, you know, retweeting it. But um, I don't think that has the same sort of staying power, if you will, as, you know, being passed a physical copy of the paper by someone else who, who read it. So, you know, if it's shared among readers, that's, um, it's very valuable, not only to us, but I think also to the reader in that experience. Um, yeah. Hmm. And I would just add- Yeah, I, I, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, maybe Jackie can fact check this for me, but um, I don't think our print run has gone down. Oh, no, it hasn't. It just yeah. distributed differently. It's steady. <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanted to add that I, I really love it when our readers like interact with, with the paper. Um, like, like if it was up to me, you know, the readers would feel comfortable like ripping out a page, right? A piece of art that they can put up on, you know, up on a wall. Or if they're organizing a community around housing or around, um, you know, cops in schools or, or whatever the case may be, 
you know, if there's a story that is relevant to their struggle, they can just, you know, pull it out and take it to, to their meeting or, or give it to a neighbor. Um, I, I just feel like it's, it allows for a lot more interaction. And, um, and even, you know, after the Adam Toledo shooting, um, there, there was like a huge uh, march in Logan Square. And it's my understanding that there were, you know, a lot of people who were, who were using our, our cover image of Adam um, like as a, as a protest sign, as a poster, uh, you know, to march through, to, to march uh, through Logan Square. So, um, you know, I really love it when people just take a page and, and use it for their own purposes. Wow. I think, um, I think I, I'd like to just, you know, with so many um, newspapers folding and, but that there's this rise of independent publishing and you, you seem to, be navigating some aspect of both of those. And I want to talk about, I wanted you to talk about how you feel like your model um, is different and what has, is keeping you um, relevant or surviving in these times. I, I mean, I, I think uh, in a nutshell, it's the fact that, that we're a nonprofit. Like I, I think one of the reasons many papers are folding for example the tribune is because a hedge fund is stripping them of all you know anything that is valuable um and you can't really do that to a paper like ours you wouldn't want to there's no there's no profit in it literally um so there's that and then i think also there's the, the degree in my own experience it's been the degree to which there's a great collaborative spirit not only in our own newsroom but with also with other independent media outlets and and even um you know Nonprofits that aren't directly involved in journalism, but are involved in, say, data analysis or or things like that. So that's a very strong. Th when you have networks like that, it's a very strong thing that is different from a standalone um, outlet, regardless of whether that's it's a legacy outlet that has you know a great deal of capital and and people. Um, we've got networks, which is which is extremely valuable, if not more so, I think, in terms of staying power. Mm. And I think that I think that our emphasis on really um, you know, creating long-term relationships in the communities that we cover is you know is the sort of thing that a lot of a lot of media outlets either can't or won't or don't know to kind of put the I was going to say the resources. It's not like we have a ton of money to put into it, but just the you know the human resources into it. You know, we have Alma, um, you know, who is out there, you know, like for building relationships within immigrant communities, and you know, on a on a da daily basis, and not just kind of flying in and doing a story and leaving. <laughs> This week on The Biden Files, COVID cases continue to skyrocket in the U.S. Facebook admits it is a leading source of vaccine misinformation. Chaos continues in Afghanistan. The House passes a budget blueprint. Anti-vaxxers beat up journalists. Trump's lawyers face disbarment. And Biden's popularity slumps. These are The Biden Files. Day 213, August 20th. A North Carolina man who claimed to have a bomb in a pickup truck near the U.S. Capitol surrendered to law enforcement after an hours-long standoff. 
The standoff was resolved peacefully after roughly five hours of negotiations, ending when Floyd Ray Rosenberry crawled out of the truck was taken into police custody. It is unclear why Roseberry made the threats near the Library of Congress. Video later surfaced of Roseberry on Facebook Live inside the truck, which was stuffed with coins and boxes. He threatened explosions, expressed hostility toward President Biden, profanely warned of a revolution, and laid bare a series of grievances related to U.S. positions on Afghanistan, healthcare, and the military. Roseberry was also pictured holding Trump flags and shouting, Stop the Steal. Facebook reluctantly admitted that an article raising concerns that the coronavirus vaccine could lead to death was the top performing link in the U.S. on its platform from January through March. In a related story in Alabama, Trump said that while he believes in everyone's freedom, quote, I recommend take the vaccines. I did it. It's good. Take the vaccines. Booze rang out. President Biden appeared to say the United States would defend Taiwan against an attack from China. A senior Biden administration official said the U.S. policy on Taiwan had not changed after Biden appeared to suggest the U.S. would defend the island if it were attacked, a deviation from a long-held U.S. position of so-called strategic ambiguity. When Colorado's Republican Representative Lauren Baber was running for Congress last year, she said her income came from Shooter's Grill, a restaurant she and her husband own in Rifle, Colorado. She said her husband did some consulting, listing Baber Consulting's spouse on her candidate form, but identified his income source as non-applicable. In fact, her husband made nearly $500,000 last year working as a consultant for an energy firm, and he made $460,000 the year before. She disclosed that in a late filing Tuesday with the House of Representatives. Her husband, Jason Baber, earned that income as a consultant for Terra Energy Productions, according to the filing. Lauren Baber sits on the House Natural Resources Committee, which handles the oil industry. That is, of course, a conflict of interest. Phil Valentine, a Nashville-based conservative talk show radio host, who had questioned whether it was necessary for people to get COVID vaccines, died on Saturday. Valentine was 61 years old. He had been hospitalized for COVID. Day 214, August 21st. At least one person was stabbed and two journalists were attacked while covering an anti-vaccine, anti-mask demonstration outside Los Angeles City Hall. The protest was run by members of the Proud Boys and other right-wing groups. A Southern California mortgage broker named Tony Moon, who also participated in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, was videotaped attacking a journalist. In a related incident, a declared candidate for California governor was also taped apparently participating in an assault of another journalist. Sarah Stevens, a fringe candidate running on the Make California Gold Again platform, apparently was involved in the beating of an AP journalist also covering the protest. Republican Representative Diana Harshbarger failed to disclose more than 700 stock trades worth as much as $10.9 million. Harshbarger and her husband's declared disclosures involved trades in stocks of companies such as Facebook, Walmart, Apple, and Lockheed Martin. Day 215, August 22nd. The FBI has found little evidence that the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol was a result of an organized plot to overturn the presidential election. Though federal officials have arrested more than 570 participants, the FBI at this point believes the violence was not centrally coordinated by far-right groups or prominent supporters of Trump. 90 to 95% of these are one-off cases. There was no grand scheme with Roger Stone and Alex Jones and all of these people to storm the Capitol and take hostages, said an FBI official. 
Protests by rival far-right and left-wing groups in Portland culminated in a gunfight, with at least one man arrested for firing at demonstrators. The firefight took place in the heart of downtown Portland from around 6 p.m. on Sunday. Those involved included members of the Proud Boys, a far-right anti-immigrant group, and Antifa, a loose affiliation of leftist activists. The city in Oregon has become the center of demonstrations since the murder of George Floyd. Those protests were on the anniversary of the death of Aaron Danielson, a far-right protester who was allegedly shot by Antifa. Photographs published by the website Gizmodo appear to show sections of Trump's partially constructed wall in southern Arizona in severe disrepair, torn apart by summer monsoon rains. At least six gates were washed out in a single location near Douglas. Other sections of the wall were also hit by last week's powerful monsoon. A U.S. Customs and Immigration Services official confirmed damage had been done to the Tucson Sentinel newspaper. Experts estimated the storm surge at one section of the wall at Silver Creek at up to 25 feet. Day 216, August 23rd. The Taliban fired into the air and used batons to make people line up in orderly queues outside Kabul airport on Sunday following the deaths of seven in a crush. The chaos around Kabul continues as desperate Afghans seek to flee. There have been at least 20 deaths outside the airport in the past week alone. The United States is now bringing commercial airplanes into Kabul to help with the evacuation. Meanwhile, the Taliban faced the first armed challenge to their rule as former Afghan soldiers, aided by villagers, drove them out of three districts in the mountains north of Kabul. The FDA fully approved Pfizer's two-dose COVID vaccine today. That is expected to be followed by a wave of vaccination requirements by public and private organizations who are awaiting final regulatory action before putting their mandates into effect. An overwhelming number of Americans approve of mask and vaccination mandates, according to a new Ipsos poll. The leader of the Proud Boys extremist group was sentenced to more than five months in jail for burning a Black Lives Matter banner that had been torn down from a historic black church in downtown Washington and for bringing two high-capacity firearm magazines into the nation's capital days before the January 6th Capitol attack. Enrique Terrio told the court he was profusely sorry for his actions, calling them a grave mistake. The Black Lives Matter banner was stolen from the Asbury United Methodist Church on the 12th of December by Proud Boys members and set ablaze using lighter fluid and lighters. Day 217, August 24th. The FDA granted full approval to Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine for people 16 and older, making it the first vaccine to move beyond emergency use status in the U.S. That set off a flurry of requirements imposed by hospitals, colleges, corporations, and states. That included the nation's 1.4 million active duty service members who were notified Monday that they need to be vaccinated by September 15th. New Jersey and New York notified all state employees a jab is now required. Chicago-based United Airlines also announced that its employees will be required to show proof of vaccination. Mayor Lori Lightfoot in Chicago said vaccines will be mandated for city employees as well. The moves came as cases topped 150,000 a day in the United States, a sign that the Delta-driven surge is far from over. Cases in the United States are now up 40% week over week. Deaths are steadily climbing as well. The United States is now averaging 1,000 daily deaths for the first time since March. One in five intensive care units around the nation is at or above 95% capacity. The House has voted to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would restore key provisions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that were gutted by the Supreme Court. Every Republican voted against the bill. The legislation is named after the civil rights icon John Lewis, who also served in Congress for more than three decades. 
The Taliban warned that the United States would be crossing a red line if the Biden administration keeps troops in country past the declared August 31st deadline. British media widely report that Prime Minister Boris Johnson is to ask Biden to extend the deadline at today's meeting of the Group of Seven Nations. Biden himself said the U.S. may push back its August 31st deadline to facilitate more evacuations. The U.S. and its NATO allies have evacuated about 80,000 people since the Taliban seized power. The Taliban has also blocked the main road to Kabul's airport and set up checkpoints to allow passage only to people with foreign passports or an invitation from the U.S. or one of its allies. At a press conference, the Taliban said Afghans will no longer be allowed to go to the airport. President Biden also reiterated the U.S. will leave August 31st over the objections of many of the USA's NATO partners. Day 218, August 25th. Evacuations were halted at Kabul airport after reports of a security threat at the airport. Belgium, the Netherlands, and Denmark all said they would no longer be able to facilitate airlifts while the U.S. Embassy warned Americans on Wednesday to stay away from the airport and told anyone outside the perimeter to leave immediately. The British and Australian governments issued similar warnings, with Australian officials saying there is an ongoing and very high threat of a terrorist attack. Intelligence officials have come to no conclusions on the origins of the coronavirus epidemic. The spy agencies have been investigating if the pandemic leaked accidentally from a lab or if it emerged naturally in a spillover from animals to humans. President Biden had ordered the nation's intelligence agencies three months ago to draft a report on the origins of the virus. The absence of conclusions underscores the difficulty of pinpointing the source of the virus. China also has steadfastly refused to cooperate with international investigations. Beijing is instead now circulating false theories that the U.S. may be the true source of coronavirus. The disinformation campaign has been in effect for over a year, but recently China has greatly amplified it in what observers say is growing anxiety in that nation about being blamed for a pandemic that has killed millions worldwide. The Supreme Court refused to block a ruling from a federal judge in Texas requiring the Biden administration to reinstate a Trump-era immigration program that would force asylum seekers arriving at the southwestern border to await in Mexico. The unsigned order said that the administration had appeared to act arbitrarily and capriciously in rescinding the program, citing a decision last year refusing to let the Trump administration rescind the Obama-era program protecting the young immigrants known as Dreamers. The case will now be heard by an appeals court and may return to the Supreme Court. Vice President Kamala Harris's visit to Vietnam was interrupted by the latest case of a mysterious onset of medical symptoms known as Havana Syndrome. This is the first public report of an incident in Vietnam, as well as the first publicly reported case involving a senior U.S. leader's travel overseas. The unexplained incidents, which now number at least 130, are thought to be due to a Russian microwave attack. Several U.S. officials have been diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries in the aftermath of Havana Syndrome. The House approved a $3.5 trillion budget blueprint that will pave the way for a vast expansion of social safety net and climate change programs. Democrats overcame deep internal divisions to advance a critical piece of President Biden's ambitious domestic agenda. Passage came after Democratic leaders quelled an internal revolt among moderates. The plan also allows Democrats to shield the legislation from Senate filibuster. Day 219, August 26. The Pentagon confirmed there was an explosion outside the Hamid Karazai International Airport in Kabul on Thursday. Casualties are unclear at this time. The State Department had issued a warning Wednesday night urging Americans not to travel to the airport and to leave immediately if they were gathered near the Abbey Gate, East Gate, or North Gate. 
The White House has stressed for several days that the possibility of an attack from ISIS-K was one factor pushing them to attempt to complete the evacuation operation by August 31st. COVID cases in Florida are now at their highest level ever, exceeding any point during the pandemic. The state is seeing several hundred deaths and an average of 25,000 new cases each day. Despite the deadly surge, Governor Ron DeSantis, a Trumpist Republican, has held firm on banning vaccine and mask mandates. Several school districts have defied him and gone ahead with mask mandates anyway. Chicago said all of its city workers, including rank-and-file police, must be vaccinated for COVID by October 15th. More than 30,000 people are employed by that city. The Chicago Fraternal Order of Police immediately said it will oppose the mandate. Governor J.B. Pritzker in Illinois is also expected to announce a statewide indoor mask mandate, as well as the mandating of vaccines for all K-12 and higher education employees. The House Select Committee tasked with investigating the 6th of January attacks on the Capitol issued a sweeping demand for records from multiple U.S. government agencies, including the whereabouts of Trump on the day in question. In a statement released, the committee revealed that it has sent initial demands to various executive branch agencies, including the National Archives, the Departments of Defense, Homeland Security, Interior and Justice, the FBI, the National Counterterrorism Center, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Ty Garvin became the first defendant to be sentenced to six years for an attempt to kidnap and kill Michigan's governor. Prosecutors described it as an extremist plot driven by anger at the governor's efforts to slow the spread of coronavirus. 14 men were arrested in October. They faced charges in federal and state courts in one of the most significant domestic terrorism plots ever to come to trial. The defendants, who are members of an anti-government paramilitary group called the Wolverine Watchmen, coalesced around protests against COVID lockdown measures. They decided to abduct Governor Megan Whitmer from her vacation home. Their efforts were seen as a precursor to the violence unleashed at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Garvin testified about plans to deploy a homemade explosive device as well as other illegal weapons. His testimony has resulted in added federal charges being brought against three of the men. A U.S. judge has sanctioned lawyer Sidney Powell and other lawyers who sued in the state of Michigan to overturn President Joe Biden's election victory over Trump. She also suggested they might deserve to lose their law licenses. U.S. District Judge Linda Parker in Detroit said the pro-Trump lawyers, including Powell and prominent litigator Lynn Wood, should investigate the Republican president's voter fraud claims more carefully before filing what Parker called a frivolous lawsuit. Parker dismissed the Michigan lawsuit last December. She formally requested that disciplinary bodies investigate whether the pro-Trump lawyers should have their law licenses revoked. The judge also ordered those lawyers to attend classes on the ethical and legal requirements for filing legal claims. Finally, Parker ordered the pro-Trump lawyers to reimburse Detroit election officials for the cost of defending their lawsuit in the first place. The FCC has proposed a $5.1 million fine against a group of conservative activists for making unlawful robocalls that made false claims about mail-in voting. The calls lied about mail voting in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election. It is the largest robocall fine ever proposed by the FCC for violating the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. Roughly 89% of the funds from the Emergency Rental Assistance Program have not been distributed, according to the Treasury Department. At least 250,000 Afghans who work with NATO remain in that country. 
after a spike in COVID cases and the partisan criticism over the chaos from America's withdrawal from Afghanistan, President Biden's overall job approval rating has dipped below 50% for the first time in his presidency. These are the Biden Files. Mario Smith chatted with Lear Galli from the Chicago Reader about the current music scene and the death of local arts coverage. Galli discussed arts post-pandemic, why the Reader remains vital, and how it's not really true that he hates all music. He just hates your band. News from the Service Entrance airs every Thursday at 2. Where do you stand on that, and what is your relationship with her, if there is one? I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of hers at, at all. I was skeptical of her from, from the beginning. I didn't vote for her, her because of that skeptic skepticism. I mean, she rode in on on this sort of fairy tale of a platform, and everything that she's done public facing has gone in the opposite direction of of her entire platform. Like, what what on earth is there for me to get behind there? But what is confusing for me is, and and this is just an example of of the bubble that I exist in, is that there it's like a dead heat of people who aren't interested in her being the mayor of Chicago and people who think she's doing a great job with like 10% of people who are undecided, which again is an alarming number. <laughs> you know, there's, there's so many uh, overlapping catastrophes and only so much, I understand there's only so much responsibility that she has over, you know, years of disinvestment in large portions of this city. But uh, a lot of her decisions don't, don't fill me with, uh, positivity i'll say <laughs> yeah we're, we're we're looking without like trying to throw her out of office today we're looking to see and, I, and i'm not the only one doing it there are people now really actively looking around to see who's going to be the person or, pre, or people that will take that charge to run against her if she decides to run on the uh, podcast on the new york times she made it sound like she might not do that and that she might have other aspirations who are you seeing um, here in town that might say, you know, I think I'm ready to do that. I think I want to see if I can be mayor of Chicago. I have absolutely no idea, and that's the scary part, right? Because she emerged from this, you know, complete pileup of, of candidates two years ago as, as the winner. Like, it still feels like it's anyone's game. Granted, you know, voters have pretty short-term memory when it comes to you know, a five um, a five year mayoral uh, term, like th- she could do something two months before the election that'll just win over a lot of people again. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have any understanding of who might, who will throw their hat in the ring that could, you know, steer it uh, that that could win the election. Uh, you know, there there's certainly some lefty aldermen that uh, alder people that I'd be interested in voting for, but I understand that I am. I am an outlier in that, and that they, to the rest of the city, are, you know, kind of extreme. Uh, <laughs> as much as I think that they have great intentions and 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 uh, are capable about, uh, in, you know, bringing about positive change, the fact that so many of them are socialists and that is still a, uh, uh, I shouldn't say the fact that so many of them are socialists. I think it's great that they're socialists, but that that is is such a. Uh, a trigger word for a lot of people uh, and that immediately causes them to shut down. I don't know. And, you know, I would love to see a socialist mayor of Chicago. That would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that could happen, uh, you know, the next election or in 20 years, it'd be great. But 
Uh, I think the real fear is like who is going to is daily going to throw his hat in the ring again. I mean, I realize he didn't make it to the runoff in that. But, yeah. uh, it doesn't exactly encourage him to to go in, but he seems like that. You know, that that is a, a to me much more of a real possibility of 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 a challenger who who might actually be able to to win. And that doesn't make me feel any better <laughs> about about the next election. Chicago's own Press A released their debut video today off their forthcoming and self-titled debut album. Right here is the world radio premiere of Carcosa Shore.
Download complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. Before now, researchers have only been able to successfully predict accidents seconds before they happen. Mm-hmm. Seconds. That's at that point. That's too late. There's not a lot of wiggle room no. at that point. It's, there's not a lot of opportunity to put in controls to be able to react to it. Right. With and some, seconds to go. Sometimes all yeah. So in fact, that's a great that's a great point. All that car can do is do a little wiggle and hope it avoids the accident. We and I just think that's bad engineering. And obviously, it has not worked uh, as as uh, evidenced by certain events yeah and it's and it's only in some cases it's only made the problem worse but thanks to advanced ai developed by tech brothers partially the new media labs and hundreds of sensors located all around the vehicle we are able to predict accidents with above 80 percent certainty up to one minute before they happen now that's that's quite incredible how are you able to verify that how are you able to that you know as someone who has dabbled in Mm. prognostication right someone who has dabbled in fortune telling as part of their professional career Mm. that's very difficult to do up to a minute especially in such a uh, energetic fast-paced world life is a highway certainly on the highway certainly right. it is a highway uh how 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 is the uh the ai able to to do this what it, what is that based off of well you know the same thing happens rowan what your questions your concerns same things we heard from chess masters 20 30 years ago is that how could a computer beat me in chess how can it predict my moves so accurately and it turns out it's not too difficult particularly here we're using quantum computing quantum computing yes now wow that's and and that is incorporated into the automobiles uh yeah kind of eureka cast now broadcasting saturdays 8 to 9 p.m on lumpen radio the lumpen week in review is produced by the staff and volunteers of wlpn lp chicago the community radio of the future the Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.